BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. I remember my teacher came up to me afterwards, Miss Bueller. She put her hand on my shoulder and she looked over at the paper and she saw the poem and she looked at me and she said, Clint, this is beautiful. You can be a writer one day. And then she went to the next person and, you know, we never really talked about it again. And for all I know, she could have said that to every single kid in that classroom, right? Or she could have forgotten it right after she said it. But I, I remember that moment for the rest of my life. Today I talked to Clint Smith about his new book, How the Word is Passed. It's described as a reckoning with the history of slavery across America. Clint's travels took him across the country to see just how truthfully the past has been remembered. In this episode, we also talk about family, poetry, and the best kind of jokes according to his kids. From Sugar 23, I'm Angela Ledgewood, and this is Lit Up. It's my great pleasure to have Clint Smith on Lit Up. Clint, thank you so much for being here. It's a true pleasure. We're here to talk about your debut nonfiction book that's called How the Word is Passed, A Reckoning with the History of Slavery Across America. And before we dive into this important and incredibly powerful book, I'd love to talk about the impulse uh, to write it. I know that you were a high school teacher for many years, about a decade ago, and that that experience um, of being in the classroom and reckoning with, you know, the questions and insights that these really inspiring young people had was a spark that may have started so long ago for you. Absolutely. The book was born out of a few different places. So in part, It was certainly having been a high school English teacher in Prince George's County, Maryland, right outside of D.C., working in a school of predominantly black and brown low-income students, as so many large public school districts are across this country. And really thinking deeply about the sort of larger ecosystem that my school and my students were a part of, thinking about how the school, we couldn't understand the, the nature and context of the school and what was happening there 
without understanding the sort of larger historical and sociopolitical factors that shaped the lives of my students every day. I ultimately went to graduate school because I wanted to think more deeply about the larger social and historical factors that were shaping what contemporary uh, black and brown communities look like today. And in 2017, the statues to uh, several Confederate generals and, and leaders came down in my hometown in New Orleans. And I was watching these statues come down and thinking about what it meant that I grew up in a city in which there was there were more homages and more iconography to enslavers than there were to enslaved people. And, and how does that happen? And how is that sort of part of the this lineage of, of history that has shaped what communities like mine in New Orleans, what communities like my students in Prince George's County, what communities all across this country look like, and understanding that the, the, the history of with the poverty that so many of these communities experience, the violence that they experience both systemically and within the community cannot at all be disentangled from this, this longer history and can't be disentangled from these, you know, a 60 foot statue of Robert E. Lee that sits on a, on a pedestal above, above a city in which the majority of the residents are black. And so I started thinking a lot about how history is remembered and reckoned with how we understand or fail to understand it as the origin point of so much inequality in this country and kind of got obsessed with the idea of finding places that were willing to confront that history, that were failing to confront that history, and that were sort of doing something in between. And that's when I, I kind of went informally on this journey and started thinking about these questions and then slowly realized that there might be a larger project here. How would you explain your experience as being a high school student in New Orleans? Was it very similar to the experience the students you were teaching in Maryland were happening? I feel very lucky to have gone to good public schools in New Orleans, and I'm very grateful for the education I received and, and the teachers who worked so hard to, to provide me with that education. There were also so many gaps that I became increasingly aware of the older I got, and so many things that I didn't encounter until graduate school, right, that that helped me more clearly understand why this country looked the way that it did today, why my city looked the way that it did. I, you know, I tell people that when I was younger, I felt this sense of almost like a intellectual or emotional or psychological paralysis, right, where I was inundated with these messages of why Black people lived the way that they do why we lived in the conditions that we did, why New Orleans looked the way that it did. You know, people will call New Orleans the murder capital of the nation or say we incarcerate more people per capita than Iran and China and Russia and these authoritarian regimes. And implicit within that is people saying that there is something wrong with the black people who are the majority of these cities and the majority of this city. And it is, it is up to them to make a different set of decisions so that they are not living in communities saturated with poverty and violence and the like. And you grow up with that. You grow up hearing that over and over again. And I think I didn't have, I felt really confused. And I felt really, I was like, I know this isn't right, but I don't have the language or the toolkit with which to push back against it. And I feel like I didn't get that toolkit until many years later, right? And I'm studying all these things and I'm I'm reading the Declarations of Confederate Secession. And I'm like, why didn't anybody show me the Declarations of Confederate Secession in my eighth grade Louisiana history class when we're talking about, you know, the this Robert E. Lee statue, the fact that I, you know, go down 
a street named after Robert E. Lee to get to school, the fact that I, you know, feed the ducks with my mom under a statue of PGT Beauregard in, in our city park, you know, that this iconography, that this history was all around me. And all I had ever learned was like heritage, the South, these people were honoring, you know, just great men who, who fought for the people and communities that they loved and, and not really ever reckoning with what these folks were actually fighting for and what they stood for and what they said for themselves that they were fighting to preserve and expand, which was the institution of slavery. And so, you know, it's a small example of something that if I had learned that in eighth or ninth grade, when I probably should have, I think there would have been a lot more clarity about a lot of the landscape that I was seeing around me. And it would have been part of a sort of larger quilt uh, of information in some ways that would have given me more a, a fuller understanding of how this country has come to be what it is. And there's so much power in that, right? There's so much, mm. when I started learning these things, it was it was freeing, it was emancipatory, it was liberating because the country isn't able to lie to you anymore about why it looks the way that it is. You don't look at, you know, your different communities and neighborhoods in your hometown and say, you know, the reason that people live this way is because they've done something to deserve it. You And you you always know that that's wrong, but now you have, the history to understand it and to make sense of it in a way that that I think is deeply important. Well, I think your book provides that illumination for, for all of us, but I want to go back to this idea of learning history, the, re- the truth, as a way to then be able to discern the truth from like these nostalgic elements or these other mythical stories that, that people perpetuate. Like I think you're speaking exactly to how that knowledge allows you to say, wait a second, no, 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 to other other stories that come your way and to have that ability and that confidence earlier is so important. I felt that I understood that this has been a process of you finding that voice and I want to go back to the fact that you're a poet as well and what it's like to start to have a, a command of language. When did you start putting words together to try and make sense of your world? You know, I've always loved language and I've loved writing. And even before I knew it was something that could be engaged with in, in any sort of serious or professional way. You know, I, I remember in third grade, I wrote a, a, a poem. I, our teacher had us write a poem about like our favorite color or not even our favorite color, but like write a poem about a color in the world. And I, being a strange, strange, weird child, wrote about the color gray. And I remember the poem to this day. That's a strong, strong statement. It was. I don't know what I was trying to say. I was really a a kid who liked to go against the grain. So I was like, you know, everybody's going to write about orange and purple and yellow and the sun. And I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to shake it up. So I wrote about the color gray and the poem went, I hate the color gray. It reminds me of a rainy day. Gray, I really hate that color. It's annoying like my little brother. And I, I don't know why I remember that, but I do. I think I discovered it, rediscovered it like in our attic a few Christmases ago. Did you ever repeat it to your little brother? I feel like as an older know, brother at home, you're like, nah, <laughs> over on repeat. I'm, I'm glad to say that my relationship with my brother is is in a far more loving and stable place than it was when I was a, clearly a third grader who was 
full of full of feelings and and you know third grade animosity. But I remember my teacher came up to me afterwards, Miss Mueller. I, you know, I have no idea if she remembers this, but she came up to me and she put her hand on my shoulder and she looked over at the paper and she saw the poem and she looked at the paper and she read it and she looked at me and she said, Clint, this is beautiful. You can be a writer one day. And then she went to the next person and, you know, we never really talked about it again. And for all I know, she could have said that to every single kid in that classroom, right? Or she could have forgotten it right after she said it. But I, I remember that moment for the rest of my life, right? And it's hard for me to disentangle the fact that I've been able to make a life as a writer from something my third grade teacher told me, right? It's not, it's not as simple as a sort of causal, causal link necessarily, but for someone to, to tell you, for a teacher to affirm you in that way was so important. And, and I, I think when you're young or when you're a person in the world, when somebody tells you that you're good at something, it, you're like, oh, well, maybe I should, I should do more of this thing. And then, you know, I kind of, my relationship to writing ebbed and flowed, but it was in 2008 that I was, uh, it was in between my sophomore and junior year of high school that I went to a place called the New Yorican Poets Cafe in New York City. And, you know, for those unfamiliar, it's kind of like the mecca of, of spoken word and performance poetry in the country in many ways. And I had an internship there in the city. And one of my friends, she was like, you know, I was like, well, let's go see the, the Mission Impossible 2. And she was like, we're not going to see Mission Impossible 2. We're going to go to the New Yorican Poets Cafe. And I was like, the what a what? Like, I had never heard of that place. And I went. And I had never experienced art and literature as I had that night. And it was just this room full of black and brown and queer and, and all people from all over who were, who were doing poems that served as both a, a mirror in many ways, who were getting on stage and sharing poems that were, you know, the kind of thing when you read something or you hear something and you're like, I've always felt this way and never knew how to say it. But also that served as a window into a set of experiences I had never spent much time thinking about. I always remember this woman who did a poem about living with cerebral palsy. And I left that night never thinking about disability the same way again. And I was like, I don't know what this is, but I've never been so viscerally moved by art as I was that night. And I, I don't know what it is, but I want to do it. I've kept writing for the past you know, decade or so and, and feel very fortunate that I've, I've kind of fallen into a position that allows me to make make a life of words, which is which is a true and rare thing that I, I, I don't take for granted. No, it's wonderful. We're also glad too. That's a beautiful story. I can just imagine that inhabiting that moment, you know, when you have a creative epiphany or or just a, an understanding that you have to be in the proximity of something to turn our attention to your this incredible book of yours and can you tell us it's very much about place and you visited many, many places to un try and unpack how they both acknowledged or kind of snuffed out the history of slavery. And we'll, we'll touch upon a couple of them. Where was the first place that you decided to go? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I think that certainly the watching the statues come down in 2017 was a major catalyst for thinking about this, as, as I mentioned. But I thought that it might be, I, I was exploring it in the context of my poetry. And I went to Monticello, which ends up being the first chapter of the book. And I went there and I was, you know, on this tour and I was really struck by the way that 
the, the guide was discussing Jefferson's relationship to slavery. And after the tour, I went and there were these two women who I saw having these like very visceral reactions to the things that the guide was saying. And I was like, I should go talk to them. It is not my natural disposition at all. I was like, I don't know these people. What are they going to say? But I went and asked if I could speak to them. Their names were Donna and Grace. And over the course of our conversation, over an hour or so, they were very generous with their time. It was so illuminating because it made clear to me how how much the our various identities, our various backgrounds, our different sets of experiences, assumptions, preconceived notions shape the way we experience a place and shape the way we experience a piece of land. And, you know, I was talking to them and this is, these are women who had no idea that Monticello had been a plantation. They had no conception of Jefferson as someone who had enslaved hundreds of people. They were, they were so taken aback by that idea. And they were like, we never, we just came to see the house. We just thought like that this, well, we were coming to see Jefferson's house and had no notion of no conception of the people who created the landscape and cultivated the the place that they were, the land that they were walking on. And in that moment, I think it became clear to me that this book had to include the voices of other people, right? The way that our experiences, our respective experiences in these places is are often so different depending on who we are or where we come from. Thinking about the the descendants and the the public historians and the people who who curate the stories that are told on that land. I wanted to put all of those things in conversation with one another, which was a different project than I had initially imagined. There was a quote from one of the guides called David that struck me so much and it was, history is what you need to know, nostalgia is what you want to hear. And I kept thinking that that is almost one of the refrains in this book to remind us, remind us that we have to acknowledge the facts and it relates to another woman who you spoke to, you encountered in New York City said, and she said, don't believe anything if it makes you feel comfortable. And I think if you put these two quotes for me kind of next to one another as things to take with you everywhere you go to ask questions of, for me, why do I feel comfortable in a space as a, as a white woman? You know, so many places I get to feel comfortable. But if so, I need to interrogate that and find out why. Going back um, to Monticello, because it's such an important place in American history for so many reasons, how did you find the experience of David, the guide there? And did you feel like his telling of that history was respectful in your, in your experience? Mm. Monticello is such a fascinating place in so many ways because I think that Jefferson is a sort of microcosm of America and America's history. You know, you think about America as a place in that is given unprecedented, unimaginable opportunities for upward mobility and opportunity to millions and millions of people across generations in ways that their ancestors could have simply never imagined. And it is a place that has provided that opportunity and mobility to those millions of people at the direct expense of millions and millions of other people across generations. And both of those things are America, 
right? Like both the opportunity that has been provided and the people who it has been provided at the expense of. And I think Jefferson is, again, a sort of microcosm or, or personifies that dissonance because he is someone who wrote one of the most important documents in the history of the Western world in the Declaration of Independence and also someone who enslaved over 600 people over the course of his lifetime, including four of his own children. He is someone who wrote in one document that all men are created equal and wrote in another document that enslaved people are uh, inferior to whites in endowments of body and mind. You know, so what does it mean for a place to to acknowledge that Jefferson was was very smart and brilliant in so many ways and that he was also deeply racist? And in order to tell a full and honest story of Jefferson, you have to tell the whole story. And to tell a full and whole story about Monticello, you have to tell the story not only of Jefferson, but of the enslaved people who lived there across generations, who in many ways that land belongs to even more so because Jefferson was gone for, you know, decades and decades of his life in his various roles of of public service, whether in Paris or D.C. or Philadelphia. And so are you telling the story of of the enslaved communities who live there? Are you telling the story of who this person wanted to be versus who they actually were? You know, Monticello is interesting because it has several different tours that you can go on. And there's the Slavery at Monticello tour, which is the tour that I met David on, which focuses specifically on Jefferson's relationship to slavery and the lives of the enslaved people who lived there. And I think I was struck because I was so I was so impressed with how honest David was. You know, I, I don't think that that's what I expected when I when I showed up. And I think that he was more direct and forthright and nuanced about Jefferson and his relationship to slavery and the role that slavery played at Monticello. Than, than almost any any educator that I, you know, any teacher I'd ever had who who was tasked with with talking about this. And so he was, you know, a very compelling character. And part of the joy of this book was that I had no idea, you don't know who your characters are going to be until you show up, right? Like it's it's the sort of delight of the surprise that you you meet a person like David, you meet people like Donna and Grace, you have a follow-up conversation with with David and you, you know, as a writer, you're having all these moments as you listen to him where you're like, oh, you know, that's, that's got to be quoted. I think he represents a group of public historians who are doing deeply important work across this country at various sites and locations and who have experienced their own personal reckoning and coming to terms with notions of who, what they thought this country was or what, who they believed certain people were before they were able to tell that story to other people. And in some ways, you know, a person like David is uniquely, or, or Teresa, another person that I meet in at Monticello, those folks are uniquely positioned to tell, to communicate with certain audiences or certain groups of people because they also had to go through a process of unlearning so much of what they had been taught before so that they are able to move with, to speak both with, directness, but also to move with a sense of of generosity and an empathy because they have also been, they, you know, at one point were where Donna and Grace were, right? And and it is, it's a, as Naya says, another person in Monticello, like you have to meet people where they are if you want to bring them where they need to be. We, I think your book will help people make a leap, hopefully, 
to understand these places and I mean everything that's in your book. But I'm wanting to connect your experience at Monticello where there was responsible history telling to places, well, a couple that that weren't. And I don't want to dwell on your experience at Angola prison for too long because I feel it's too traumatizing and it's so carefully done in the book. But to contrast the experience of, say, David to the man that leads you on a prison tour, if that's the correct way, but what it was like to go, I was just a shocking part to me was that there is a gift shop at a prison in the first place. Like it's just kind of confronting the callousness of 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 humanity too. The fact that that is something that exists was a shock. How did you engage with that and how did you have to call on your generosity of spirit yeah angola was a haunting and strange place angola is the largest maximum security prison in the country built on top of a former plantation and which 75 percent of the people held there are black men over 70 percent of them are serving life sentences and what i tell people is that if you were to go to germany and the largest maximum security prison in Germany was built on top of a former concentration camp in which the vast majority of the people held there were Jewish, that place would be a global emblem of anti-Semitism. And rightfully so. It would be abhorrent. It would be disgusting. We would never allow a place like that to exist because it would run so counter to any notion of morality or, or justice or, or humanity that we believe in. And yet here in the United States, we have the largest maximum security prison in the country in which the vast majority of the people held there are black men serving life sentences who go out into fields early in the morning and in the evenings picking crops for virtually no pay while someone watches over them on horseback with a rifle over their shoulder. And so part of what I'm interested in when I go to Angola is like, what is what are the ways that white supremacy and the history of white supremacy not only enacts physical violence against people's bodies, but also collectively numbs us as a society to certain types of violences that should otherwise be wildly unacceptable. Like how is how is that prison allowed to be there on that land in that way? And how is it allowed, to your point, to have, have a gift shop? To have a gift shop that you step into and you see coffee mugs that are almost making a, a, a joke or a mockery of what that space is that say, you know, that have one mug that I saw had a, a silhouette of the, the front gate, the front entrance, of Angola and someone standing there with a, a rifle at the top and it said Angola a gated community and you're kind of just like what is happening in this place i mean why am i in a gift shop in front of the largest prison in the country and why does this gift shop it's not only it's not only indifference but it's seemed to embody a a, a deeply unsettling as you said, callousness around what they're actually doing and what's what's happening on that land and how unsettling the similarities of what's taking part, what's going on on that land to what happened all these generations ago. Norris, the guy who I went with, who was there for in, in Angola for 30 years, you know, when I spoke to him, he was he talked to me about what it felt like to go work on land for seven cents an hour 
and to pick cotton on land that, as he says, he's like, my ancestors might have been on this land for all I know, right? My ancestors might have been picking the same cotton from the same fields that I was picking cotton from all those years. And so, you know, Angola is very much a place that that is in so many ways failing to, in any way, account for what has happened there. And in so many ways, perpetuates a sort of indignity and 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 maybe and perhaps an indifference about the the lives of you know people who who have been in that prison for for decades and will and will likely die there thank you for that beautiful answer i there's an incredible interview you did with ted and in it something struck me that you said and it's about this idea that when we read a history, particularly for, for a white person, we read the history and we go, well, that was so terrible what our ancestors did, but that's not who I am. And you said that whoever you are, you would have been the same person back in history as you are now. And don't ever assume that you are better than, than people in history. Uh, I thought that was so powerful and it, I think that also helps us make ourselves accountable in the present and not to distance ourselves from, but that was back then. Yeah, I do think that that's true. And I think part of what I'm saying is that you know, everybody looks back at slavery, for example, and thinks, you know, if I were living back then, I'd have absolutely been an abolitionist. I would have absolutely been fighting against the cruelty and barbarity and inhumanity of this institution. You, we don't have to imagine like who we might have been if we lived during some historical era, if you lived during slavery, if you lived during the civil rights movement, if you lived during Vietnam, if you, because we have our own moment right now. Right. You know, as you and I are talking, it feels like we are experiencing another being inundated with, you know, police killing black and brown people over and over and over again. It is hard to imagine something that you haven't seen. But that is what people have done to make societies better across generations. And so we don't have to wonder what we would have done. We can just think about what we're what we're doing or what we're going to do now. At what point in this process did you realize that you had to talk to your own grandparents about their stories? Yeah, I was probably sort of midway through the project. And I, you know, had been to Monticello and Angola and the Whitney and the Blanford Cemetery, you know, one of the largest Confederate cemeteries in the country. And it was, you know, I realized that I was, I was asking all of these strangers, these deep, profound, intimate questions of their lives and their life histories. And I kind of had a moment where I realized that I wasn't bringing that same level of intentionality to my own family, right? So I'd spent years working on this book at that point, asking strangers to tell me stories about their lives and their descendants' lives, and, or, and the, or rather their ancestors' lives and their ancestors' lives. And I was like, well, why do I not ask my grandparents, the same types of questions that I'm asking these people that I might never see again. And it, it was all animated by the fact that I had been to the National Museum of African American History and Culture 
alongside my grandparents. They both came to town and were in town one weekend. And part of what we did as a family was go to the, the Black Smithsonian Museum. And I had this moment that I write about in the book where, you know, I'm pushing my grandfather, who was born in 1930, Jim Crow apartheid in Mississippi, in, in his wheelchair. And my grandmother, who was born in 1939, Jim Crow, Florida, is walking just in front of us. And I'm looking at them and I'm looking at the exhibits that we're moving through as we move through the exhibits to, to slavery, as we move through the exhibits to, as we move past the casket of Emmett Till. And thinking about how so much of the history that was documented in this museum, my grandparents had experienced firsthand, right? They like so much of the violence that they were experiencing. I remember we walked past a, a photo of, of this group of men who had been lynched. And I looked at the the date and I looked at the place and I was like, this could have been, this could have been my grandfather, right? That I, we walked past Emma Till's casket and my grandfather's like, you know, we lived in the, the county right over, the town right over from where Emma Till was killed. And, you know, my grandmother, when I asked her about this later, I was like, well, what was it like going through that museum? And she just kept saying over and over again, she was like, I lived it. I lived it. I lived it. And for me, part of my desire to write this book and my obsession with the history of slavery and understanding the history of slavery more generally is because my grandparents serve as a reminder of my own and our own sort of collective proximity to that period of time. You know, I think of my three-year-old son sitting on my grandfather's lap. And I imagine my grandfather, you know, I imagine him sitting on his grandfather's lap. And I'm reminded that my grandfather's grandfather is someone who was born into slavery, right? And so this history that we tell ourselves was a long time ago wasn't in fact that long ago at all. There are people who are still alive today who who loved, who were raised by, who who knew, who had who had relationships with people who were born into bondage. The woman who opened the Museum of African American History and Culture alongside the Obama family in 2015, who rang the bell that sort of signaled the, the opening of this museum, her father was someone who was born into slavery, right? And so, you know, the insidiousness of white supremacy and racism is that we are made to feel as if we talk about slavery all the time, right? Like, oh, I know about Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass, and I watched 12 Years of Slaves, and you know, da 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 da. But we don't actually at all talk about it or think about it or study it in ways that are commensurate with our proximity to it in terms of time and the impact that it had on this country economically, socially, politically and how the entire social, economic, and political infrastructure of this country is deeply, deeply entangled in, in the history of slavery. You know, you can look at from the electoral college to gerrymandering to housing to education to, I mean, e everywhere. It's, it's impossible to, to disentangle anything that we see from, from that 250-year history. And my grandparents and those conversations were perhaps the most profound reminder of that. And what I write in the book is that, you know, sometimes the best primary source 
uh, documents are are the people standing right next to you. Mm. I also, from my perspective, reading the book, and it's made me want to talk to my parents about what it was like growing up in Australia and how they treated or had knowledge of or what was taught to them about Australia's Indigenous people. You know, as an Australian to acknowledge that we had a white Australia policy until 1973 and therefore our entire system of everything is embedded with that white supremacy. We all need to talk to our parents and our grandparents and try and understand their relationship with their own country but also have them be honest about and have us all acknowledge the things we don't want to hear and and also to ask ourselves if this story is making me feel pretty comfortable and like happy about my ancestry you might have to dig a bit deeper or mm-hmm. a lot deeper yeah i mean i i've become a sort of uh, oral history evangelist where I, I'm, I think that everyone should interview their elders, the elders in their family and their neighbors as much as they can. I mean, there's just so everything in my own life was clarified and helped make so much more sense after I had those conversations with my grandparents. And it's something that I, I want to do more of, right? Like I, for so many years, I didn't know that my own mother had been the person who integrate, helped integrate her school in New Orleans, right? My mom is, what, she's 60, 61 years old. You know, so, and she integrated a school in New Orleans. And so, and I didn't, you know, maybe she told me and I was a child who was, you know, more interested in peanut butter and jelly sandwiches or something. But but I think being intentional about having those conversations can un, can unearth so many really important parts of your own history and help situate your family in the sort of larger historical landscape in ways that provide a lot of clarity yeah well Clint I know we have to let you go in what's meant to be a minute so I want to ask you our last question and that is what lights you up what lights me up my children my children it has been uh I have an almost four-year-old and uh, a two-year-old and you know (laughs) My wife and I, we never uh, anticipated that we would be raising raising small children during during a, a global pandemic, as is the case for many parents. Like, never spend this much uninterrupted time with my children ever mm-hmm. again, which is an interesting thing to, to think about. And so I've tried to really lean into that part of it and to just, you know, they're just so, they're so funny and they're so delightful and they're so... You know, they love right now. They love jokes, and so you know, we some at dinner time we'll like, you know, read through these all these kid jokes, and you know, it's like, what is why wasn't the banana? Why did the banana go to the doctor? And it's like because it wasn't peeling well, and they just fall on the floor and they just laugh and they think it's the funniest thing they've ever, ever heard. And now they're trying to come up with their own jokes, and so my two year old will say, "The banana is sleepy," and that's that's the joke. Right, like that's <laughs> yeah. that's her version of the joke, and it's just you know those moments are are what make parenthood what it is. And I, they are these just balls of of delight. They're exhausting. They're also just there's nothing there's nothing like kids 
and they tire me out, right, all at the same time. Glenn, thank you so much. I really, now I hoped that one of your kids may have made a kind of <laughs> a burst through appearance. I think we've sequestered them in, in the basement at the moment, so. Well, maybe a banana joke, yeah. but. <laughs> exactly, he would love nothing more. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Clint Smith. His book, How the Word is Passed, A Reckoning with the History of Slavery Across America, is available now, and you can purchase it via the link on our website. You can read more of Clint's incredible work on his website, clintsmithtriplei.com, or at The Atlantic, where he's a staff writer. Lit Up is a podcast from Sugar23. It's hosted by me, Angela Ledgewood, and is produced by Liam Billingham. Mike Mayer and Michael Sugar are the executive producers. The theme music is by Andre Rodofsky. Please make sure to rate, review, and follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. Until next time, bye everyone. BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Maryland. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code OLDLINE150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Maryland today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days from issuance. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional not available in Washington, D.C. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.